Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 73. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today, we're going to be reacting, admittedly a few weeks late, to the State of the Union address. And to clarify, we are not poli-sci majors, we're not political experts, we are American citizens viewing this through an American lens and reacting, I would say, largely emotionally, at least for myself. And I'd be very curious to hear what your first reactions to it were, Caroline. Well, I as well, Kip. My first reaction was just how morale-boosting it felt, how focused on this common American experience, despite the divisions in politics that are so prominent in Washington right now. Did you kind of get that vibe as well? That's definitely the vibe that I got. Absolutely. So throughout the entire speech, he's talking about, most importantly, he said, this is as his last point, I thought he'd turn to like gun violence or something in his last 15 minutes of the speech. But he was like, no, the most important thing we can talk about is how we need to work together in Congress to work on bipartisan issues and bipartisan collaboration so that we can make progress in his last year of office. And how do you feel about his emphasis on bipartisan issues? Do you think it's unrealistic? Do you think it's idealistic? Do you think he's trying to bring together groups and parties that historically have not always seen eye to eye and may not see eye to eye? Or do you think it's a reasonable request, perhaps? That's what I was trying to piece together while I was watching it because I was in some ways agreeing with him 100% that in order to enact real change in this country, the government has to work together, both parties, Republican and Democrat. But it felt like I'd been hearing the same thing over and over and over again every State of the Union since I've started paying attention to the State of the Union, which is basically since Obama was elected. I, mean, I was 15 when he was elected, and now I'm 22. And I, don't, I can't truthfully say before I was 14, I paid attention to the elections. And to tap into that, I don't know that many people in our generation did before President Obama took office. So true. He's very essential in that way. He encouraged and inspired millennials to be more politically active. And of course, we do go to a school where people are very politically vocal and active. But I'd like to think that we aren't an anomaly. I suspect there are a lot of people our age who did start following politics because of of Obama. And that's a really important role to carry as a man, as an individual, and of course, as a president. And I wonder how that'll continue once we've elected someone else. But back to what you were saying about this bipartisan issue, it didn't feel disingenuous. It felt a little unrealistic, maybe, because I mean, at one point he was like, I know we're not all going to agree on health care. And someone applauded from the Republican side. And he kind of made a joke like, oh, there's some applause. Someone was just emphasizing, yeah, we're not going to agree on this. So why even try? And Obama has always had this really hopeful message that we will collaborate and get stuff done. But it just hasn't happened. So I found myself rolling my eyes a little bit while watching the State of the Union because it was just like, yeah, we're all American, but at the end of the day, politicians aren't playing out that spirit of American camaraderie. That's not what their focus is, I guess. That's a fair point. And I wonder to what extent the individual clapping when Obama made that remark was perhaps applauding him for recognizing the difficulties in politics and in his cabinet and in his administration. That's possible. I thought it was more of someone just being like, you're right. <laughs> We're not going to agree. 
And I respect that perspective. But in a familial metaphor, I think parents often have to recognize or family members have to recognize, but parents as authority figures in the family must identify inherent conflicts, siblings that may not ever get along on certain things. And so we should work around it or compromise or stop discussing those things that we know those two siblings or those multiple siblings will always fight about. And I lament that as the optimistic father, which is my term for Obama, did come in, I think, as you've said, with a hopeful message. It seems as though his administration has been crippled by bipartisanship and disagreement. And I recognize that knowing very little about economics and politics, I can't say that all of his goals were achievable. But the fact that he set out the goals that he did and still believes in them, to me, says something very positive about his conviction. And I have a lot of respect for that. And I think you talking about Obama as this hopeful father figure who really has made a huge difference, I think, in the young person's our demographics, involvement in politics. I mean, I kind of consider Obama like the cool president. What are we going to do when we have potentially Donald Trump or even I, who really do like a lot of Bernie Sanders' ideas? I mean, he's 71 or 72 years old. I mean, he's not going to have that same zeal. So to look at specific things that were said and quotations that I wrote down, Obama focused a lot on the hard work that Americans can do, and he justified financial and other forms of support to the average American family because, as he articulates, those who are willing to put in hard work and contribute to our American system deserve to be supported. He said, all these things still matter to hardworking families. They're still the right thing to do. And he was referring to raising the minimum wage, protecting children from gun violence, immigration reform, working to combat prescription and other drug abuse, and protecting middle class families with tax cuts, which was a budget that had been agreed upon at the end of last year by Congress. And I think it's interesting that he focuses on hard work and the family because those tie into American values to a degree and our capitalist spirit and our American dream. But everyone in the world comes from a family and many people in the world that have succeeded or have supported their fellow human beings have done so as families that have been putting in hard work. And so I'd like to ask you to what extent when watching this, you felt like these goals or ideas could have been applied to other nations in the world or other people with very similar dreams of success. Well, I think what's most important in what you're talking about is this emphasis on everything we're doing is towards strengthening the economy. We're talking about working together as a working class to provide for our children and grandchildren, as is always said in these speeches. And then once he does acknowledge certain aspects that are divisive in our society, like race and religion, he emphasizes that being exclusionary towards those groups is not good for the economy. And that's why we shouldn't treat them like lesser humans or different from us. Which saddens me for a number of reasons, because I would hope that anyone, regardless of political leaning and other differentiating factors, could see people being mistreated and marginalized as an inherent flaw with our system, with our culture, with our society, and wouldn't need political or economic motivation to behave in a more empathetic or humanistic way. And I recognize that I'm definitely a similar idealist as Obama. I'd love for things to be better, and I can envision that world. It's not always realistic to do so, and I do recognize that. 
So maybe the best way to motivate human good and more positive action is through rewards such as that. And maybe I have to bite that philosophical bullet. I think you're right, though, in saying that a lot of the language he's using is evoking a spirit of a world economy rather than just America. And he's saying America is the greatest country in the world, but people depend on us and everything is kind of linked in that way. But it was interesting to me, as you said, that he didn't talk about being inclusionary of minority groups or minority religious groups in the U.S. because it was the right thing to do as he did when talking about the American worker and the American family, which when you think of that is a white middle-class heterosexual male. I also found myself while watching this wondering about the history of the State of the Union. And I'm wondering what you might think. I did a little background research that it's written in the Constitution that the president addressed the Congress from time to time, as it says. And I'm wondering what you think the point of the State of the Union is. Why do we have it every year? Sometimes not every year. I think that's a really great question, especially to someone who did not do the background research and is purely responding out of his impressions. And at some point, I would love to do that research with you and maybe have a conversation about the history of the State of the Union. However, in this instance, my thought is that it can come across a bit like propaganda. I think it's a means of encouraging the American watching, especially now that we have media to transmit that message and say, you can watch it on YouTube. If there are certain individuals in college who want to make a podcast about this, they're going to go to YouTube and watch that video clip, which is exactly what I did. And so I'm very aware of the accessibility of those images and of that speech. And while I have that cynical perspective, I do think it's important to remember where we've succeeded as a nation or what we've done well in the same way that a report card can be very helpful at remembering, okay, I had maybe a rough semester, but these are the grades. This is how I'm leaning as I go into my next semester of school or in what departments I should work harder or study more. It is useful at categorizing some things and helping us to think about our country. Categories can also be dangerous, though, in simplifying or drawing up boundaries where they don't naturally exist. And we've talked a bit about the economic boundaries with philosophy and philanthropy to a degree. And I also found it interesting how Obama talked about other nations. He was saying, well, China doesn't lead the economy. We decide X, Y, and Z. Or in the past, when Russia beat us to space, we didn't deny that Sputnik was flying over our heads. We erected a space program almost overnight, and we were the first ones to land on the moon. And I think those are interesting milestones to point out. It does, again, in an idealistic way, sadden me that those are colored by aspects of competition. I know that we live in a world where nations do compete, but increasingly economies and so many other things, ideas are dependent upon one another globally and internationally. And I don't think you could claim that nations are separate, or at least many nations are not separate from one another. And just in general, I don't love the spirit of competition, but that's a personal bias that I know that I have. And unfortunately, that a lot of Americans really believe and emphasize that they are number one. We are number one. Which is a complicated view to take. And I say that with a bit of a smile because I think it's ironic. To me, when you say that you're number one, not only do you establish that you're on the top, but I believe mentally it's very comforting because it's so simplistic. You're at the peak of the mountain. You don't have to think about who's above you and who's below you. In your mind, everyone's below you. And that's just a very easy box within which you can work. 
Exactly. And I think the U.S. is already an isolated country. One thing that Obama didn't mention, which is a well-known fact, is that our science and math scores are well below many countries in the world. And while, yes, education was emphasized, it was further emphasized that we are still the best and on top. Exactly. And when you believe that you're number one, a huge vulnerability emerges where you refuse to ask for help because you think it's beneath you and you're unwilling to see your inherent flaws or vulnerabilities or weaknesses, if that's a better word for people listening. And it really bothers me because to be the best on some level means that you can relax, you can stop trying. And I think that's antithetical to human progress. And I say human progress and not American progress, because we do often say as America that we're going to keep striving and we are going to be the best if we aren't currently Although we are currently, according to our national rhetoric, which is backwards because you can stop if you're the best and you are the best, but that's not happening because we're not there and it's all circular. And I'm sure my sentence right there was very circular as well. One interesting thing to me is that Obama, again, touching on economic motivation, encouraged the viewer to reinvest in science that might help discover the cure for cancer and other diseases like HIV AIDS, which is important. He noted that we're almost there when it comes to curing HIV AIDS, and I think that's a very difficult thing to gauge. But in terms of either cure and many more out there for scientists to discover, he described it as a point of American pride that we should be the nation to cure it. When I would say, as a human being, you should be the human or the group of people as scientists or others who are working to cure something, not because it's your nation, but because millions, if not trillions of lives down the line could be saved by your actions. I understand national pride, but I personally don't often feel very much. So the State of the Union was a very complex thing for me to watch. I felt like the treatment of finding a cure for cancer was very much like the treatment for us landing on the moon first. There's a race. We have to get this done so that we can be the people that plant our flag in this area of science. Which is interesting because Obama kept talking about the future and change, and yet he's still talking like this is the Cold War, which is very possibly the case. I'm sure political experts out there could weigh in and say, Kip, we are very much still in the Cold War. I just find his use of terminology to be very traditional. Well, it's exactly. It's a classic rhetorical device to harken back to the good old days of landing on the moon first and talking about the work of FDR, which upon doing some background research, I kind of understood a little further because it was FDR who first called it the State of the Union in 1934. So when you really think about it, in those standards, the State of the Union is a relatively recent practice. And like you were saying, I think the State of the Union viewed as a report card could be immensely valuable, which was why I think Thomas Jefferson back in 1801 discontinued the State of the Union or what it was called then was the letter to Congress or something along those lines. And not until 1913 was it reestablished by Woodrow Wilson. And up until 1913, basically what the president would do was write a letter to Congress stating the weaknesses of the past year and the strengths of the past year. And it was read aloud to Congress by a clerk. And I really found what you were saying about this nature of propaganda in the State of the Union resonant because it felt like all these rhetorical devices and because it was made into a speech, I felt like a lot of the reflection that the State of the Union might be trying to emphasize was lost. 
And upon hearing you repeat propaganda as a term, I do recognize that it's a very loaded word that often comes across as very cold. And I don't mean to say that we are lied to as a people, but things are definitely colored in a positive way to encourage Americans. And I absolutely understand why that is done by Obama and by the administration. But I also think it can be problematically misleading in not telling certain hard truths that need to be dealt with. One of my favorite quotations from the speech was a reference to Pope Francis, who told Obama to imitate the hatred and violence of tyrants and murderers is the best way to take their place. And Obama notes that to use hateful rhetoric, isolate others, and attack those who are different betrays who we are as a country. And that really struck me. And before I explain where my thought process went, I'd like to hear if you had a similar reaction to it or if hearing it again now gives you any strong impressions. I agree with it, but it also sort of feels like the U.S. is hypocritical of it because despite all the great accomplishments that Obama talked about within this past year, he didn't mention the torture report that came out or what's going on in Flint right now. And those are just two examples of where the U.S. has failed its people and maybe not in a hateful or malicious way, except arguably with the methods of torture that is malicious. But- I have trouble truly thinking that those words coming from Pope Francis are genuinely fulfilled by our nation. I think despite everything that Obama said about how to treat people in a human way, there is so much corruption in our government. That is undeniable. And that means that the U.S. does have a spirit of tyranny, whether we publicly acknowledge it or not. Exactly. And while I agree with Pope Francis's quotation, I think that Obama saying it betrays who we are as a country is problematic insofar as the history of our nation is very troubled by hatred and continues to be troubled by hatred and fear. And I would contend those go hand in hand. And there's a lot to be discussed there, which we don't have time for in this discussion. But simply put, racial tensions being one category of many, in my opinion, there's a lot of hatred in our country. There has been a lot of hatred in our country. It would almost be more honest to say that a spirit of hatred is exactly who we have been as a nation. And we need to correct that because I personally believe, again, perhaps optimistically, and I know as a white male, that everyone has the capacity to be far more empathetic and to, as a nation, be a more loving people and embrace a better spirit of humanity. But I don't think that we have been that way, at least not to all of our citizens. And I mean, every single one of them. I agree. I mean, I've found it odd oftentimes throughout this that, yes, while the speech is trying to be unifying, even bringing up something like voting ID laws and how racially charged the enactment of those are. I mean, in Alabama, they are shutting down many DMVs, not because they can say to African-Americans who are the majority population in those counties that you can't vote, but they're going to make it really hard for them to vote by not enabling them to easily get a government-issued ID. And I think to just gloss over that as being like, we need to make it easier for people in general to vote. That is ignoring our past of hatred that is still persisting today. And he did address, as you had mentioned earlier, 
the corruption in politics and his hope that big money can be removed from the political system or can have a reduced role and reduced influence so that the voter, the average American, has a larger say in our democratic republic. He also said that there will be groups who have financial and other investments in keeping things the way they are and that we should be open to change and recognize it won't be easy, but it is part of the future. It is part of life. And he asked the audience, will we respond to the choices of our time with fear, which I'm concerned is becoming the case in certain areas of our government and our world and our nation as Americans. And the four questions he focused on in his address were, how do we give everyone a fair shot at opportunity and security in this new economy? How do we make technology work for us, not against us, especially when it comes to solving urgent challenges like climate change? How do we keep America safe and lead the world without becoming its policemen? And how can we make our politics reflect what's best in us and not what's worst? Was there one of those issues that stuck out to you when listening? That third question about not being the world's policeman resonated with me in some ways because it also felt hypocritical in some ways because we have such issues with police violence in the U.S. And then also we believe that we are on top and that we have the authority to go in and intervene because we know what's right, right? So I do believe we have a lot work to do in order to establish that balance domestically and abroad. That one stuck out to me as like, okay, it's interesting that we are somewhat aware that our invisible hand of the West that we keep putting into all these countries is overstaying its welcome. And yet we continue to reach our hand into places that we think it belongs. The question which stuck out to me the most was the final one about how our politics should reflect what's best in us rather than what's worst. All of these systems, and I would argue any system that human beings have ever devised, has been to elevate us above what we are as individuals to work better together and achieve more. And I worry that the bipartisanship and other issues in politics that Obama noted have become sources of stagnation and caused us to stop progressing and stop trying to put forth our best efforts, which I hope can happen in the future in both politics, federally and locally, and in other systems. Before we close, what are some things you'd like the audience to think about? I guess after watching the State of the Union, I found myself thinking, what actually did happen in this last year? Because that speech wasn't all that revealing to me about what actually happened, what went well and what didn't. And is our country moving forward or not? I mean, you can tell me a bunch of statistics about the economy, but I care more about where Americans are as humans. And if we are in some ways or at least slowly moving past this burdensome history that we have accumulated. So even if that means going and doing a little background research, which is really why I did that, I really encourage our audience to reflect on the year. This might sound weird, but I keep the torture report in my room because when I read that, it struck me so much as everything I didn't want this country to be. And sometimes you need to remind yourself We live in a country that's no better than any other. We are all people. We may not all be equal. We certainly aren't, as that speech said we are. And you need to be reminded of that. Those are very important points to make. I would also encourage people, as you alluded to, 
to stray away from using summaries like speeches as placeholders for real information. You should find your own sources and recognize that a single hour-long speech could not possibly summarize everything about one nation's year or a year in the world because we are a global power. And I think that people, whether they're Americans or not, should question their governments and should be wary of not necessarily propaganda, but sugar-coated facts. And we will include a link on this episode for fact-checking of the speech because not everything Obama said was completely, as he stated, as you should probably expect in an address of this sort. I would also be curious to hear from international listeners if any of you had watched the address and if you have perspectives that we hadn't considered as American citizens. As always, we would value that because we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. And if you have any thoughts, comments, opinions, or criticisms, or feedback of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us on Twitter or on Facebook. Where you can like our page and receive updates from when we post an episode. And you can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show, as well as sharing it with those you think might also enjoy this conversation. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.